Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 26 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Shasodia. Hi, Raj. Hey, Timothy. It's, uh, it's uh, old friends uh, week this time, isn't it? Well, speak for yourself. I mean, I have some <laughs> friends that I've known a long time, <laughs> but I wouldn't call this friend old. He's the youngest among <laughs> us. So <laughs> we do have a friend that we've been with on this conscious uh, capitalism journey for a long time today, and that's Rand Stegen. And um, Rand, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for the invitation. I've been listening to your uh, to your journey so far, and it's just a treat to have the opportunity to join in in the dialogue on this side of the um, of the recording. And hello from Dallas, Texas. Great. Well, maybe a little bit rant about your involvement in conscious capitalism because it goes back. I remember after we organized the very first um, conscious capitalism summit. I remember sitting around in Austin afterwards at a table and you put up your hand and said, I want to be part of this. Oh, <laughs> yeah. like, oh, we yeah. said, great, come on in. <laughs> 2008, Austin, Texas, the crossings, catalyzing conscious capitalism. And, uh, and Raj was there speaking and Timothy, you were there hosting and producing. And I was there as a speaker. And, uh, and I, at the end of the, uh, at the end of the event, I realized that I'd found my community, I'd found my tribe, and I have never left. And so I think the three of us have um, have either signed up for or someone has signed us up for being in every role imaginable from committees to boards to chairing. And it's been a uh, it's been a it's been a, it's an incredible journey. So we've yeah. we've been in this together, all of all three of us, along with our other, you know, early uh, early uh, leaders. Yeah. Well, thank you for being such a wonderful companion on that. Um, and, I, you know, I guess the first thing is to maybe structure what we're going to be talking about today a little bit, at least frame it a little bit. And uh, Rand is one of those people who, when people say to me, like, where's the cutting edge of conscious leadership? Uh, Rand, your name is one of the first that always comes up for me in terms of if I really wanted to know <laughs> what the cutting edge practice was in this area. I would always sort of turn to you and the work you're doing with your group, the, the Stegen Institute. And um, so maybe tell us a little bit about the things that you're doing and, and how you got to that place. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll uh, just provide a high-level overview, and then we can see where the conversation goes. I, uh, I spent my uh, 20s after college as, a, uh, as an entrepreneur and a small business owner where I uh, started a media company publishing newspapers in Dallas, where I went to school, where I went to college, and uh, throughout uh, throughout North Texas, and then eventually Texas. And so, I had about I had a, a small team of about forty five or fifty people during my twenties, the decade of publishing. And I uh, and I, as a as an operator, I really found uh, a tremendous value in having my own executive coach back then, and having uh, access to you know some of my inspirations in the nineties would have been a Stephen Covey on the sort of more uh, intellectual side and a Tony Robbins on the more inspiring side, and then a sort of a Wayne Dyer or a, a Deepak Chopra on the more spiritual side. And so I was a I was a seeker and I was a learner uh, early in my career. And when I sold the media company in 1999, uh, I asked myself, you know, what do I really want to do with the next chapter of my career? And I uh, and I realized that where I had the most joy and inspiration on a daily and weekly basis, when I was with my sales team training uh, training young uh, professionals on how on the, the fundamentals of of selling, and I said to myself, something happens when I'm in that environment where there's an old saying, a Taoist saying, the teacher and the student create the taught, where it wasn't me just dispensing knowledge. 
it was me being in an environment. And yes, I was the curator of that environment where I was learning, they were learning, uh, and we were learning together. And so I started um, Stegen as a, a leadership institute, a leadership academy in 1999 and, uh, and set out to uh, develop a system that could help leaders become uh, more conscious. I didn't have that word uh, back then, but to help leaders become more intentional, more, uh, more aware, more awake. And uh, we've been doing it for a couple decades and we're learning a lot. We've got a uh, incredible faculty. We've got a brick and mortar facility, a leadership academy uh, on the edge of downtown Dallas. And, uh, and our clients are now CEOs and senior executives from all, all across North America who fly to Dallas to train with us and who work with us virtually. And, uh, and it's a really unique model, which we may get into today. Uh, but that's a little bit at the high level of where I came from and what I do, uh, what I do now. And so, Rand, your approach is rooted in the integral uh, way of thinking and being, right, from Ken Wilber and others. Yeah. So if you could uh, tell us a little bit about that whole realm and why you gravitated towards that and why we need that rather than one of uh, dozens of other approaches to leadership. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that, um, that I, we can take credit for sort of being intentional, ironically, about that early on. I think we were at the right place at the right time. I had a, a partner, his name was Brett, um, that was helping with uh, curriculum development in the early years. With my background, I was more of the uh, the marketer, the brander, the communicator with my media experience. And Brett was the uh, was really the the source of curriculum uh, design and uh, instructional design. And he was a Ken Wilber fan. And I actually came in, Ken Wilber came into my awareness through uh, Tony Schwartz's book, who's, now, who's also a friend, um, What Really Matters, where there was a chapter on uh, on Ken Wilber. And I talked to Brett and I said, I just read this amazing book the first year together uh, in our business. And he goes, oh, the Ken Wilber, I, I'm a big fan of Ken Wilber's. And so we were, um, we set out, we were just ambitious and, and idealistic. We said, let's see if we can build a relationship directly with Ken and let's see if we can learn from him. And we were able to do that. And, uh, and then we met uh, Bob Keegan from Harvard and Bill Torbert from Boston College and um, you know, ultimately, Bert Parley, who is Ken Wilber's chief of staff uh, for many years, moved to Dallas to join our team. He's still here, you know, 16 years later. And we were afforded access into what would become another community of ours, the integral community, along with conscious capitalism. And, uh, and through that, Raj, we, uh, we were able to build direct relationships with researchers and with consultants and with coaches and with spiritual teachers. Uh, and it's just been, uh, it's been an incredible experience. And it still is as we, uh, as we go down the rabbit hole of integral theory. And so um, conscious capitalism and integral, uh, the integral community have been the two communities I've spent in the last 20 years in consistently. Just explain to our audience what, what is integral theory and what's the integral approach? What does that mean in simple terms? Yeah, so integral theory would, would often be associated with the philosopher and thought leader, Ken Wilber. And what, uh, what Wilber set out to do was, uh, was acknowledge the partial truths of everything. And so he looked at all the world's religions and said, there's a partial truth in all of them. He looked at the various fields of science the various fields of business, the various fields of medicine, and ultimately concluded that a model could be built to hold all models, sort of a meta model of, uh, of everything else. And one of his books kind of boldly is, a, is called A Theory of Everything. And so he has built, let's just call this, um, he often talks about maps in the territory. And so if the territory is reality, and I think we're probably going to talk about the territory of the inner work, you know, conscious leadership, as we all like to say, is an inside job. So there's the inner territory, and then there's the um, external territory. And what he has done is he's created some really beautiful maps of these territories, inner and outer. And he's curated and consolidated the maps of others and categorized them. So instead of holding himself off as the 
uh, as the content provider, he's really uh, he's really collected the content of an incredible, you know, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years of um, other people's uh, thinking and models, and then created a model to hold all those models. And those are the maps that we used 20 years ago to navigate the territory. Those remain the maps that we use uh, to navigate today and to help our um, and to help our clients navigate. Well, that's really helpful to sort of paint the big picture. And I'm wondering if now you can maybe drill down a little bit. So let's talk about conscious leadership and how you would start to define that in the frame that you just presented. So how do you define conscious leadership in that framework? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a, and it took us many years to ultimately uh, articulate something that was accessible and simple. We used to say, that a conscious leader is a leader who has, um, who has more awareness. And so people say, what does it mean to be on the journey of, uh, of, of becoming a conscious leader? And we would say, it's really about becoming a more aware leader. And awareness creates, and this is a very central part for us, awareness creates choice. When we have more awareness, we have more choices. And we often would use the metaphor of the verticality and the idea of um, elevation. And so the conscious capitalism uh, movement, many of your listeners and viewers know that our purpose as a, uh, as a movement is to elevate humanity through business. So the idea of elevating, of being conscious, of having uh, more awareness uh, allows people to say, oh, if I were at a football game and I were to be coming, looking at that game from an elevated position up in the press box, I would be able to see more of the game. I would be able to see more of the territory and therefore I'd be able to actually uh, have more informed choices on the kind of plays that I'd want to run into, which is what happens where there's people in the press box on headsets and they're talking to the coach who's down on the field, whose perspective is more limited. And we would also say that if you're, uh, if you're climbing a mountain, that the higher up you go on the mountain, the more expansive the view is going to become and uh, and the more you'll be able to see, and where we uh, and that's where we that's how we talked about this and made sense of this for our um, for ourselves and for our clients early on, and lately, thanks to our chairman Rick Vorin, we've added uh, an important distinction to this. Let's call it Timothy a definition, and what we say is with awareness, there is choice. Without awareness, only habit. With awareness, there's choice. Without awareness, only habit. And we, we, have, we have evolved our curriculum design to fall into a very, um, very concrete distinction. And the distinction is current level, next level. So from one level to the next, playing with this elevation theme. And at the current level, we call that reactive this is the reactivity of life, the habituation of life, where, um, where life has us, we do not have it. And the move from reactivity to consciousness is, uh, is how we've uh, framed, or we call this the through line of the spine of our work. And so when someone says, what do you mean by conscious leader? We say a leader who is in his or her reactivity is a leader who is, um, who is not making uh, as many conscious intentional choices, but they're more reacting and they're more in habit. And we work with leaders to become aware of their own reactivity, step one, and then to ultimately be able to use that awareness to have a more sustainable uh, um, and, a, and a more expansive sense of awareness. And I'll end with this. This is not, it might sound at first, uh, pretty kind of warm and fuzzy, and pretty intangible, uh, but just like at a football game, when one is up in the press box, you're going to have uh, a unfair competitive advantage if the team you're playing only has the perspective on the field. And so, uh, so this is there's there's real practicality to being a conscious leader because uh, that higher view not only comes with perspective, that higher view also comes, as the three of us know, um, with the idea of adult development, that as one moves from one level to the next, to the next, to the next, each higher level of development is more complex 
um, just like an operating system, I'm going to age myself, Windows 98, um, Windows XP, those are upgrades. And, uh, and when, you are, when you're operating at Windows XP, Windows XP back in the day could do everything that Windows 98 and Windows 95 could do and more. And so we're really committed to helping leaders upgrade their own, what Bob Keegan at Harvard calls meaning-making system, the human operating system, um, and what also Keegan surprisingly calls um, consciousness complexity, that there are, that there are distinct um, ways of assessing one's, um, one's consciousness complexity. And people say, well, isn't that just cognitive? And the answer is yes and. There's a cognitive dimension. There's an emotional dimension. Raj, you've gotten really into the, um, the awareness of the body, the word soma, you know, somatics, that, it, it, that a conscious leader isn't, isn't only committed to her cognitive development, uh, but she's also committed to her emotional development. She's also committed to her development of her spirituality. She's also committed to the development in her bones, in her body, to be able to sense and feel what's going on with her stakeholders, her customers, her employees. And so, um, so this, is, this is sort of the, the, once again, the territory uh, that we play in. So I'm gonna, now I'm going to make this a little bit more yeah. of a dialogue. How does that land for either of you guys? How do you want to respond to what you would use to fill that in or agree, disagree? Well, what I love about it is that you've made, you know, often you get into these discussions nowadays, right, about vertical leadership development and horizontal leadership development, right? And, you know, the horizontal is often described as the skills, the capabilities that someone needs to be a leader. So if you're the football coach up in the press box, you still need to know football. <laughs> you, know, right. you need to know how plays run. You need to know how to call plays. You know how to be situationally aware of like what fits with what. So there's a, a skill and a talent element to leadership that, you know, we've often thought of as being trainable or developable in that sense. Yeah. And then you've brought, and that's the leadership sort of one element, but you've brought this consciousness to it. You've brought this other element that says we need to pay attention to these things. Yeah. And if we're not developing these things, then we're a bird with only one wing. <laughs> you know, we, we need both wings for the bird to fly. And yeah. um, so I'm wondering, how do you weave that story together? Well, I mean, I, I think you're, um, you're pointing to the, the dimensionality of one's skill set and experience set and kind of just schema that like if I'm working with someone who's in the construction business or versus someone who's in the technology business versus someone who's in the kind of retail business, uh, there's going to be their sort of the industry capabilities that they're going to have. And so for us, we, we don't work with early um, leaders that are young in their career. So we're not working with typically people who are, um, who are just sort of starting out. Our, our specialty, which means we have a limited experience, but allows us to be more niched, is working with senior leaders who are typically already at that sort of C-suite, um, at that C-suite um, position in an organization. And so they're probably you know, 20 years into their career and, uh, and often stuck. And so our, um, our, real, uh, our real passion has been to find, if I stay with the athletic metaphor, to find very accomplished athletes that are at a level in their career where they either feel like they've stalled out for some reason, or they feel like um, they really are, are committed to moving to their next level, that current level, next level move. So they have to be um, open. And as Raj knows from studying uh, conscious leadership, they, uh, they, have to be, they have to have the humility to realize the paradox of development, that the winning formula that we use to go from one level to the next will paradoxically become the very formula that will hold us back from the next level. And so we call that the performance paradox, mm. where where the success that fueled me to become a C-level exec, a chief marketing officer, a CEO, a president, 
that that winning formula, which could have been micromanagement, it could have been um, you know incredible hard work, it could have been intuition and instinct, that when I get to the level that allows me to uh, to sort of benefit from all that, that I'm now actually creating a level of um, it's almost like a prison or a cage. Now the people we work with, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a gold, uh, it's like a golden cage, because these people often have a lot of resources, a lot of money. They're uh, powerful. They're successful. And then for us to say, well, how would you like to, you know, confront the limitations of your current level, um, which means psychological work, emotional work, spiritual work, uh, and really reinvent yourself in a non-cliche way, because we'll hopefully get into the industry and the 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 charade that's mm. being played in the leadership development industry is a charade we choose not to participate in, which mm. we we may get into. But I'd love Raj to to you know take it from here. Well, uh, you talked about working with people about twenty years in, right? So that's in their early forties, which is typically when you have your midlife crisis. That that's a that's a crisis of meaning and purpose, right? So they have succeeded according to the traditional norms, right? They've risen, they've acquired power and status and money and so forth, and yet they feel hollow and empty, right? And so that's a time of of tremendous potential growth. I mean, you could recede back into the old way, but I think that's where the idea of meaning and purpose, I think, takes on deep resonance. So when you talk about being able to see from a higher level and the consciousness, you also have to understand yourself and like, who am I and what am I seeking to bring out into the world, right? And uh, and what is my unique uh, gift and how can that manifest through this business? And I know you do a lot of amazing work with people guiding them. I think I learned about the hero's journey from you at, at one of our retreats at John's Ranch. Like yeah. the whole idea, right? How do you go on that journey when things, things that seemed good before suddenly start appearing sort of barren and meaningless, right? And you say, wow, this, this, I'm being called to grow yeah. in some way, right? So how do you, how do you help people uh, discover that, look within and discover their own unique purpose and what makes them tick? I just love that you've brought in the uh, midlife. I love that you brought in the hero's journey, which is a, uh, a concept that you know, many are familiar with. It came from the work um, of Joseph Campbell and uh, his study of myth and his study of the sort of universal monomyth is what he referred to it as, where there's a hero and the hero of the story. And we're all familiar with the hero's journey because many Hollywood hits are based on it from um, the Wizard of Oz and Dorothy being the hero to Luke Skywalker in Star Wars to Braveheart. Uh, Mel Gibson uh, loves the hero's journey and many of his uh, many of his films, The Patriot and others, are, are are tied around this idea of the hero. And the hero is living her life, living his life, and then the hero gets um, gets a what's, what he referred to. Campbell referred to as a call to adventure, a whisper that there's something else. Uh, Neo from The Matrix would be another example of this. There's something else calling that hero to a to a new chapter of their life, to an adventure. But the hero's busy and the hero doesn't have time. And so the hero rejects the call to adventure. But once the call begins, it gets louder and louder and louder until Luke Skywalker, who says, no, I'm not going to go and uh, participate in this fight, um, finds that the, uh, that the empire has come and destroyed his village and killed his friends and neighbors. And then he's forced to go on the adventure. And so... Uh, then the hero goes on the adventure and is um, is plunged into unknown territory. And this is the beauty, going back to territories, that the known territory for all of us, everyone listening, the known territory is simply our comfort zone. It's that it's that part of our life with our friends and our and our careers, uh, our our inner and our external expression of this. It's just where I'm comfortable. It's known. And when I step into unknown territory, it can be uh, it can be scary, it can be uh, inspiring, it can be provocative, it can be terrifying, mm-hmm. it can be fun. There's all sorts of ways to um, to describe this, but it is in the unknown territory where innovation occurs, and it is in the unknown territory where disruption happens. And so we 
Um, we then see the hero go through these challenges and be aided by guides and mentors to then return. If you think about it as a circle, I'm home in my comfort zone, and then I go away and I go into this um, unknown territory so that I can then come back up to the top of the circle and home again. So home, away, home. And that journey of, uh, that circular journey of, uh, of invention would help people understand to, to return to where we began and know it for the first time, right? That 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 yeah, that's a famous um, that's a famous T. S. Eliot uh, yeah, quote. T.S. Eliot <laughs> of insight, right? T. S. Eliot, and um, and so because I'm different after the experience, and so to answer the question, everyone, everyone listening right now, the three of us, we are the hero of the story of our life. We're the hero of the story of our life, and so the big question is. Who's writing the story? Who's writing the story of Timothy's life, of Raj's life, of Rand's life? And so often, back to reactivity, back to habituation, people fall asleep in a almost intoxicated by the known world, especially if they're successful, and uh, and are then sort of living a life that is um, that is actually. That uh, is actually happening to them. And uh, Bob Keegan at Harvard, the reason that I, I, I really love so much of his research is that he talked about the move from a level of consciousness that's more socialized, the sort of life I'm living is the life my parents raised me to live, that my grandparents raised me to live, that my religion raised me to live. I was socialized, which is, there's healthy parts of this. I was socialized by my environment and by my caretakers early on. But then when we work with clients who are 40 years old and 45 years old, and we say, what's important to you? Let's work on your personal values. They will often realize that the values that are on their list are not their own authentic values. They are the values that were handed to them and given to them by their mom and by their dad and by their teachers and by their grandparents. And they have a awakening in which they can say, I can still choose to take some of these values that were handed to me because that's, that's beautiful. And I can now Bob Keegan, I can become a self authoring leader. I can begin to author the story of my life. And that is literally what Bob Keegan calls on the next level after socialized consciousness. He calls it self authoring consciousness. And so that current level, next level move now to be a little bit more complex. Someone would say, well, if, I, if I'm able to move to that self-authoring stage, that conscious stage, out of a reactive stage, what's beyond that? And Bob Keegan would say, the self-transforming stage. Mm-hmm. And then one can go up to that stage and say, well, what's beyond that? And, the, and, and it's, a, it's a never-ending spiral staircase mm-hmm. that we're moving up as adults, Timothy, back to you, vertically. And so... We learned early on that when we laid out, you know, six or eight levels, um, it was pretty overwhelming. So we went to the current level, next level convention. And what's so beautiful about that is if a leader is at a socialized level, then the next level for that leader is self-authoring. But if a leader is already at self-authoring, then the next level for that leader is self-transforming. And so this relative nature of current level, next level has been um, has been really wonderful, and um, and the last thing I'll share, there are only two reasons in our experience why a leader is going to leave his or her known world, mm. their current level, their known world. One reason is that they're forced out. The call to adventure gets louder and louder. They're forced out. Heart attack, near death experience, trauma divorce, okay, death of a loved one. There are all sorts of ways in which we will be forced out of our comfort zones or to choose out Mm. of our comfort zone. But in the absence of being forced out or choosing out, the status quo is where we're going to live. 
Jim Collins studied level five leadership, which is a convention he used, his levels from level one, two, three, four. Level four is an effective leader. Level five is this sort of magical, mysterious leader. And what he found is that those level five leaders, that some of them described their, their catalyst for their own you know, evolution, their own transformation was, was trauma, like very serious trauma, like near-death experience trauma. And we tell our leaders, our clients, we call them members uh, in our community often because we really don't see what we're doing as a transaction. Yes, there are customers. Yes, there are clients, but they're really in a, in a community sense, they're members of, uh, of our Stegen community. And what we'll tell them is, you don't want to, Raj, back to your near-death experience. I'm, I'm sorry, your, um, your midlife experience. Uh, it, it's like, wow, at midlife and I have this, I, I get forced out of my complacency. We try to get people who haven't yet been forced out and we try to give them some maps to choose out. Mm. But you got to have a lot of courage mm. to leave your happy place and move into the unknown territory and the, and the adventure ahead. And that's where our guides come in and our coaches and our psychologists. I mean, we have a, we have a, a, a faculty of executive coaches that, that do have backgrounds, many of them as psychologists and psychotherapists. Uh, but we also have a full-time religious scholar on staff who's been with us for 12 years full-time, who is a Zen priest, an ordained Zen priest, and a biblical scholar, a Jewish scholar, a Hindu scholar, uh, and an Islam scholar. And so even though he's mostly working in a Judeo-Christian context, um, and here we are in Texas in the heartland, <laughs> and we have a Zen priest with robes walking our facility, and, and, and that's part of the, the answer too, is that, that, that a conscious leader is recognizing that there needs to be room for the true kind of inclusion, Mm. Where so many people are saying, oh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and all the important issues, but inclusion um, that is more expansive is what a true conscious leader, I believe, stands for, not just inclusion of if it's a progressive DEI program, are we going to be inclusive of the more traditional conservative values also, or are we going to only be inclusive of progressive values, or if we're on the other side? Mm. Are we going to be are we going to be coming from a traditional standpoint and not inclusive of our fellow Americans if we're talking to America that are on the progressive side? And so conscious leaders, um, conscious leaders recognize the danger of choosing a side or picking a camp. And mm. we also are sympathetic to the difficulty of standing in higher ground. Another, another metaphor here for elevation to standing in higher ground because a colleague and friend of mine, Steve McIntosh, who co-wrote the Conscious Leadership book with John Mackey, uh, he, uh, he said to me once, he said, you know, Rand, people in today's world, especially in the polarized world, they're often wanting there to be common ground. Like, how do we find common ground? Sounds good. And he said, Often common ground is not available in today's complex world. What we need is not common ground, but higher ground. And mm. that's, another, uh, that's another way of kind of tying all this stuff together from a consciousness standpoint. But anyway, back to you, brilliant guys. Raj, what's on your mind on this? Well, you said something that, that touched on what I consider the holy grail of all of this work, which is how do you systematically elevate people's consciousness in the absence of a, of a crisis? Right. So how do you get them to choose to step out of a comfort zone? How do you get them to, uh, you know, that's journeying consciously versus uh, journeying, you know, sort of a, uh, because of what happens to you in your life. And, and, I, and I think that's the whole crux of our movement, really. We need more conscious leaders in order to have conscious businesses. And people have their awakenings at different points in their life. They might have an epiphany at a wedding or a church or you know, whenever sort of lightning strikes in people's lives. But how do we get a group of leaders in a room and systematically create those conditions? And I think that's what you're hinting at. That's what you're attempting to do with some of those people, right? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that we're hinting at it. We are, <laughs> we are, we're, we're very, very explicitly exploring it. And uh, I don't think that we, I wouldn't say that we've figured it out that, 
that that and I want to go back to Wilbur because you guys opened up the door on Wilbur, and so I don't usually talk about him in podcasts uh, because he's so academic. But he has popularized the distinction you just made, Raj, between states of consciousness at the wedding, at the rock concert, states of consciousness which are temporary and they're beautiful and wonderful, versus stages of consciousness. So when we talk about one one level to the next to the next, we can talk about it as one stage to the next stage to the next stage. Stages are structures of consciousness. And states are temporary experiences. And yes, if you practice with enough state, uh, ele elevating your state, that can help and that can contribute to the ultimate evolution to a higher stage. Uh, but the but this is this is the really getting mm. at the crux of it, right? So I'm you know Timothy, you and I have talked about this for years. Um, so what are your thoughts on stages versus states? Well, I, I think the important thing that you've really pulled out of that, and you haven't mentioned yet, which is um, you know often when we're looking for a leadership development program, you know we're looking for we're, we're going to change the leaders with a program. Yep. And often the programmatic thinking is over three months or six months or, God forbid, 12 months, right? And we're going to run a program for 12 months. And you've used a phrase, we're going to take the long game, we're going to take the yep. long view. And um, when you start talking about stages and the structural steps and stages, that's playing to the long view. So talk a little bit about that long view that this isn't a, there isn't a quick fix and that if you're in an organization and you're trying to develop more conscious leaders, how do you blend the fact that you're in a large organization, you're developing a cohort of leaders and you're also trying to play the long game. And now let's talk about, yeah, we're trying to develop our top 50 leaders and we're a big corporation, our top 50 leaders 10 of those people could be CEOs of any other company, you know, eventually could yep. be CEOs of yep. other companies. So the interesting question is for that group at that kind of level, like you say, at the C-suite level, how do you blend the programmatic aspect with the, let's take the long view? Big question uh, and an important question. And, and, and it's the, it's the essence of our, uh, the profile of the typical organization that we would call a member company. Uh, we have members and member companies. And to be designated as a member company of Stegen, the CEO would be uh, would always be modeling and, and going first. Leaders go first. And so the first thing is time horizon. So let's talk about time horizon. If a leader wants to become a more effective leader, which we can just call getting better at your current level, horizontal development. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. I want to learn personal productivity. I want to learn how to get more done in less time. I want to learn how to manage my priorities. I want to learn how to assert boundaries. I want to learn how to delegate more effectively. We, we, we teach those skills. And I would say that we're very good at teaching those skills. And we consider that sort of table stakes. Like, let, let's help you get better at your current level and let's use that as a way to help you find three, four, five hours a week, every week that is currently being uh, leaking out of you, okay? Energy leaking out of you and time leaking out of you. And let's actually reclaim that so that you can reinvest three to five hours a week into being um, more proactive, more conscious. And so, so that, that move of effectiveness at your current level, it's, 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 it's number one. And I'll, I'll be honest, we were so enamored by vertical development early on that we, that we skipped that. Mm. We didn't earn the right with our clients mm. to create the space for the true vertical journey because we were, um, we were skipping over the, the skill building. So we always now do skill building with our clients first, and then we earn the right to do the deeper inner work the psychological, spiritual work that we really are most lit up by. And so that, that, that is a, um, that's a critical learning that we've had and we're still having. The, uh, the, the move then would say, okay, let's go to time. 
I'll tell a story and then I'd love to, you know, get Raj to jump in on here because I know he's got some some opinions on this too and some experiences. Our shortest program for a new customer is our flagship 52-week integral leadership program, the ILP. That ILP really should be done by the CEO first. Mm. So when people say, why don't you work with big global companies? Why don't you work with big public companies? Well, we have a few. We are, and we love public companies. We're not against public companies. We just have a, um, a guideline, a boundary that says, we're not going to pretend that you're going to become a more conscious leader, um, especially on the vertical journey mm. of development, if you think you can do it with a short-term mindset. And so when CEOs are like, no, 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 you don't understand, Rain. we're going to pay you a lot of money. We've got three months to help our leaders become more conscious. We just choose not to play. And we say, our, our journey is the road less traveled. And 52 weeks is a great orientation to conscious leadership, a great orientation to integral leadership. And we would use those synonymously, those terms. And what we then say is then you commence. And we actually have a ceremony. We had one last night for one of our cohorts. We have right now, you know, hundreds of students and cohorts of 20. And I got to attend one of our uh, commencements in just of the audience, which was on Zoom. Uh, normally they're, they're, they're live. And it was so wonderful because it's a commencement ceremony to, be, to celebrate the beginning mm-hmm. of the true journey of conscious leadership, which we actually um, think about in decades, Timothy. So we call that, we have a term that we developed called to be a decader. And a decader thinks about the work to be done on self and others and the world in the context of 10-year increments. And I'll, um, and I'll end and then let Raj jump in and we can build, you know, keep building on this with our favorite Bill Gates quote, which our clients love in the context of time. And he said many years ago, um, Gates said, most people overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. And so we say to people, how might you be underestimating yourself if you, if you could really step into being a decader? How might you be able to contribute to the world and succeed? Because conscious capitalists, we don't have the false choice of either or. We're unapologetic free market thinkers that want to create the conditions for lots of value creation and profit and to do it in a purposeful, meaningful way. It's both, it's an integrated, integral and integrated view. And so make more money, have a bigger impact, but start to think about it in 10 year increments, not three month increments, not one year increments. Because a year for uh, someone who thinks in the context of leadership development in in a year, they're like total short short termer to us. So Raj, what do you think about all that? It's terrific. Uh, So I have a a quick, follow up to what you said a few minutes ago and then a question. So you said leaders go first and that immediately brought to mind Sinex, uh, you know, Simon Sinek's phrase, leaders eat last. Yeah. So this idea that you go first, you take the risk, you know, you're the one who are, who's, uh, who's evolving and growing and trying to elevate yourself. And, and, but when it comes time to uh, take care of people, et cetera, you make sure others are taken care of. Right. So I think that juxtaposition is powerful. Leaders go first, oh, cool. eat last. Yeah, I love that if you want to add to that. But the other question I have really is around, uh, you know, this whole uh, tendency to be reactive in life comes from traumas that we may have had in our childhood or other stages, right? And unless we recognize those traumas, because they're driving us in a way, like who's driving your car, right? We are reactive because of things that happen in our life. Uh, if we don't heal those, then we're going to actually inflict suffering on others, right? It's the whole idea of victims of victims. Yes. So what do you do to help people become aware of those things within them? And how do you help people heal from those traumas? Or do you not even go into those realms? We, we live in those realms. <laughs> so, so I would say the, the respect for where people are starts with let's let's do the fundamentals and let's help you become what we would call um, a more a more effective leader at your current level. And we would say that the territory that we would try to move that leader into as their guides, because we, we have coaches that partner up with uh, leaders, we have cohorts that support each other, we have technology, we have a whole learning system and we're, we have a very, uh, we have a very complex structure 
that that holds in a very caring and loving way that holds like a um, like a pressure cooker the development of individuals and their cohorts because everything's in groups of twenty, and uh, and so we have enough intimacy in that size to be able to really let things cook, and it starts with optimizing territory. Like let's get you into some new territory that's optimizing you, and then Raj to your question of. Um, the, the unknown territory is not optimizing, it's what we call exploring territory. When a leader is guided properly with the right practitioner, with the right talented and experienced uh, practitioner, a leader after a year or two, sometimes three, can find herself exploring to a place where it's destabilizing and we call it destabilized territory. This is our faculty. This is how we talk about the work. And when you're destabilized, it's very important that one is being held. Now in AA, I'm not, I've not done AA, but I have great admiration for what they have um, created at scale of a system of true processing and transformation around the things you were pointing to Raj and that, and that, and the love and the care that's in those containers, those small physical groups, is um, is a big part of what we do also. And so you want to, and you need to be held for that journey to be safe. When a when a, I'll think of an actual CEO. Okay, CEO that I've worked with directly, multi billion dollar company. CEO highly accomplished, highly successful. CEO starts exploring territory using a system like ours and practitioners like we are, or we try to be, and CEO gets destabilized because he he finds out or she finds out this profile that when they were eight years old, they had a trauma, could have been family trauma, it could have been in um, peer groups, schools, uh, bullying, and they have never processed that trauma. And what they did is they created survival strategies to get through middle school and to get through high school. Well, we don't want to acknowledge because we don't really want to talk about this in the West, especially powerful, rich people, is that those survival strategies that we created in middle school and high school and college, they're still with us. And that's what we mean by their, 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 habit, their habits. Mm. There's, they're, they're driving us in ways that we can't even imagine because we're not aware, awake, conscious. So when... The, the work of consciousness and inner, the inner work properly aided by the right, the right guide, the right practitioner, the right coach, the right psychologist, the right psychotherapist, that can create tremendous, um, tremendous insight and breakthrough. I was talking to a CEO about the metaphor of the mountain. That particular metaphor mm-hmm. resonated with this leader. And I said, do you, do you, what do you want? And he says, I want to go to the next level. I want to move in Jim Collins from level four to level five. And I said, do you realize now that what we were able to surface in this work, processing your, uh, your trauma, do you, do you now see that you've been carrying that trauma as a weight? And he had this real, a realization like that, that is so helpful. He said to me, because I can feel that, I can now put that to the side and now I'm not carrying a pack of rocks and I can actually go on my continued climb up. And then the last thing I'll share on this is there's a statement that, that I'm sure many people know. I don't know who said this, uh, but the idea is show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Mm-hmm. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And so if, if we're hanging out with people that are at different different camps on the mountain and we got a fire and we're like, we've set up, we've set up a restaurant and we've set up, you know, buildings and like we're at camp, we've camped out on the mountain and that's kind of where we live. That's our known world. We become very fused with those people. And if all of a sudden we are no longer feeling like that's the camp that we're being called to be at now. And we want to, we want to, we feel lighter. We're ready to climb our friends aren't necessarily ready for that. Our friends don't want that. And it can be incredibly um, difficult for people to consider the possibility that the climb that Mm. they are now being called to take is a solo climb. 
It's no longer a group climb. And it's not a climb that the spouse is necessarily up for or wants or that the coworkers want or that the friends that we go out on Friday and Saturday night want. It can be, and I know this is a cliche, but it can be very lonely to be on a climb as a conscious leader. Now, here's the cool part. Even though individuals will leave their camps with their friends and their family, this is a developmental metaphor here, and go on their own, yes, it's going to be lonely until they find other hikers that also have left their camps and they meet each other. And that's what I think the three of us did. Literally, the three of us did in, in 2008. We all met each other. And I feel like like the conscious capitalism gatherings were these these elevated camps that allow, we saw some light and we went to it. And then we're like, we don't ever want to leave this because there's something special and magical. It doesn't matter if it's our conscious capitalism camp or one in Europe or one in Brazil. And it doesn't even matter if the term is conscious capitalism because those are just labels. It's, it's the journey up. And so that's, that's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful metaphor. <laughs> no, it's a beautiful metaphor, and I love the way you explain it in, in these simple metaphors, Rand. It's incredibly helpful. And I don't want to skip over something that you said a, a few moments ago that I think is at the real core of the problem here. It's the time frame that we're looking through for change. And, um, you know, just the fact that you know, nobody really wants to hear that you need to be a decader because often if you're a CEO of an organization, now if you're in a public company, the average CEO is only there for three and a half years. Right. And, and we're saying your leadership development journey. So we got to catch people earlier and, you know, catch them at a stage where we can sort of say this is a long-term journey. And the, the challenge is that when you're also trying to change an organization, so I'm, I'm a big believer that you need to develop, even if you're going on your solo journey, you need to practice leadership in the context of the organization and the organizational challenges that you have. And we're often working with leaders who are trying to develop conscious businesses. They're trying to make their purpose matter. They're trying to take a more stakeholder-oriented approach. They're trying to develop conscious cultures. So they have the challenge of both developing themselves and evolving the organization at the same time. It, it, it's, you don't have the choice of, well, like, I'm going to put one on hold while I, while I do my own personal development yeah. here. Yeah. And then we come back to the time frame. You know, like I sort of say to some people, they say, well, we want to be on the camp of conscious capitalism journey. And, you know, tell us what, you, what we can do in the next 12 months. And it's like, well, if you're not even thinking about this being a three to five year you know, journey, if you're not even thinking that time frame, you're, you're never really going to be able to step into this. So this change in time set between to be a conscious leader takes years, to evolve a conscious business takes years. And at the same time, we're having this whole debate about short-term thinking and long-term thinking. And, you know, nobody seems to practically step in and say, there isn't really an alternative to the long term. You know, if you're really going to make a difference in a complex adaptive system, the only time frame is long term. Otherwise, all you're doing is you're polishing the pig, you're moving things around in the short term, but you really can't have an impact unless your time frame is longer. And people people assume listening to this kind of conversation that we're advocating that they aren't focused on the short term also. And the, and the complexity here is we want to have the long-term context, but we also don't give up the, um, the, 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 the reality that we've got to make short-term results happen at the same time. And people think, oh, it's either short-term or long-term. And I, and, and no, it's both short-term and long-term. And, you know, Timothy, you talk about public companies, big public companies. If I was a CEO of a public company, and I realized that I had an average life expectancy of three to five years, and I was really committed to what conscious capitalism and what conscious leadership represents, then I would go at governance. I would go to the, I would go to the board and I would enroll the board and say, we are going to, this company is going to outlive us. We got to have that mindset. We are here as board members and as leaders, as temporary stewards, as fiduciaries for the organization. And so 
Um, what are we going to do to put in place exactly, Timothy, what you said, to put in place the conditions at a governance level that will provide cover for the future CEO and the CEO after that? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so a former CEO of Ben & Jerry's came and told us, and I was so blown away that when Ben & Jerry sold the company, right, to Unilever, right, yeah, and, yeah. Um, that they put in place governance and they put in place an incredibly innovative and complex way of increasing the likelihood that the organization would be on a glide path, a trajectory that would stay grounded to its values and to its principles. And that has actually, he said, because he yeah. came from the outside, that it's absolutely been successful. And I'm sure there's been you know yeah, challenges yeah, here and there, yeah. but it's been successful. So we need more courage from CEOs not mm. boards. Boards won't do this. The CEO needs to go to the board, I believe, and say to the board, this is what we have a responsibility as stewards to actually start thinking as decaders. And that doesn't mean that we give up the short-term performance that we also yeah. need to give to our current shareholders, right? There's a, there's a, there's a, there's not a problem to be solved here. Timothy, you say this all the time. There's a tension to be managed, not a problem to be solved, but a tension to be managed. Well, I want to jump in here quickly, yeah. and then I want Raj to jump in, but I just want to follow up on that very quickly. Um, it's interesting you said it's the CEO going to the board. So let me step back and I say that the issue really is a governance issue. It really, truly is. We need to have the governance be about responsible stewardship. Yep. You're not thinking about responsible stewardship, and you want this business to be thriving in three to five years from now, and you want to be laying the groundwork today for it to thrive successfully, um, then you've got the wrong governance model. But I don't think that necessarily is the CEO's responsibility alone. I think it's the chairman of the board, mm -hmm. and it's the board having that understanding that our, we don't just have a fiduciary responsibility, we have a stewardship responsibility. And that that's really the crux of what we're, we're talking about is how to get the boards to step into a different role. Because if they're playing that different role, then the CEO will have a, 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 an easier landing place or, or a more welcoming landing place. Not easier. And this isn't yeah. easy to do. It's all hard to do sometimes. But it's, they'll have a more welcoming landscape for that. Yeah, so, I, lo I love I love the, I love being with both you guys, and I love the um, the ability to like you just helped me recognize my own bias, right? It was a I, I was that wasn't integral what I just did. I sort of contracted into my advocacy. It's got to be the CEO because I was I was more partial. And what you just did there, Timothy, is you're like yes and Rand, right? Yes, the CEO could be the the person who drives that, and it could be driven from a chair of the board. And, and so, because you have much more experience working in that uh, governance realm, and so does Raj, than I do, because I have, I have more of an operator bias. So I love that, right? That we're dancing here, and we're seeing a bigger, more comprehensive picture. What about you, Raj? Well, I think we just came up with a new nickname for you. You're Yes and Rand. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I think that would be very appropriate, actually. You you you, uh, you model that, but I love the framing Timothy just made of stewardship versus fiduciary. I think that's a that's an important distinction. But one of the things I want to ask you, Rand, uh, as we get close to the end of this conversation, uh, in my experience, when I went to Barry Waymiller for the first time and I saw the culture that they had created there, and I asked a simple question, and a bunch of middle-aged blue-collar men, several of them had tears in their eyes as they started to uh, answer my question. And later on, they jokingly tell me, yeah, around here, we measure our success in man tears. <laughs> That's where we know it. <laughs> what you measure is what you get. <laughs> <laughs> the, good, the good kind of tears, right? So again, when you're dealing with, uh, with sort of the heart, the mind, and the soul, you're going to go into those deep territories. We talked about traumas and so forth. So first of all, how common is it in your program for people to actually show their humanity and vulnerability in that way with tears? And secondly, what about this, this metaphor of healing, which I particularly like? What do you think about that idea that you have a leader who's healing themselves and by so doing, they will then lead an organization to its own healing and they will become a source of healing for those it serves. But it yeah. starts, starts by healing me, right? So that I can then emanate that outwards. You just, you just articulated the essence of our uh, of our philosophy around organizational change, 
And what we say is that organizations don't change. People do. So like this whole idea of like organizational development in, in some ways, I mean, I, I'm oversimplifying my, my idea here, but in some ways it's kind of silly because really the organization is a reflection of the human beings in that organization. And the human beings in that organization are a reflection of the leaders or leader of the organization. So now back to your healing question, and we have a lot of experience on this from a standpoint of, um, of, of, of how root causes a CEO, or it could be a leader of a function, it could be a leader of a business unit, a leader can't give what she or he doesn't have. So if my job is to heal my organization so that the organization can help heal the world, which is what we need, I can't give my organization healing if I haven't done self-healing. And so, and Raj, you've been such an inspiration to me in the work you've done personally in the last you know, two years in particular. And as you have gone through your own transformation, I can speak for Timothy and the rest of the board of conscious capitalism, you're starting to shape us. Like you're starting to, you know, David White, the poet talks about shaping and being shaped, right? And that's what's always happening in leadership. And so absolutely, I mean, hallelujah, we got to get leaders to do their own self-healing so that they can then help their teams and their organizations heal so that then those teams and organizations with the leader can actually help our communities heal, our society heal, our world heal, whatever, you know, whatever, um, you know, part of that circle we want to relate with. And, and that's why we say, maybe I'll end with this, at least for what I have to share today. Uh, people will often ask, you know, Rand, if you had to summarize your, your team, it's not my learning, it's my team's learning of which I'm a part of. If you had to summarize the collective wisdom of watching thousands and thousands and thousands of leaders go through these very long and intense programs, and some of our clients are working with us for 5, 10, 15, 17 years nonstop. It's a very, uh, we're very blessed. I mean, that's a word we would use down here in Texas for, or grateful to have the opportunity for the long, the long game of relationship. But people would say, just, just summarize what you've learned. And here's, what I, here's, the, here's the term. Leaders get the organization they deserve. Mm. You're unhappy with your organization leader? See it as a mirror. Mm. And see it as an opportunity to transform yourself because everything that you're complaining about is actually nothing more than a reflection or a projection of you. And so get with get with the sober reality of adult development and the the leader who's the founder that's that's even more confronting because it, it means even more but the leader who shows up to run a public company has only been there six months we would say you're not to blame for all the dysfunction that was there before you arrived but you are now responsible and it's not about the organization it's about you and the organization and the dance you're in and, uh, and most of the time, the really mm. powerful and uh, accomplished leaders of the largest businesses that I interact with now, now just socially, because they don't really want to work with us, um, they have no appetite for this conversation. They mm. want to go and have beers with me and go out to dinner, but they don't want to have this conversation mm. about like your work leader, what are you going to do and stop outsourcing your development by hiring consultants and coaches to go in fixing your organization when the organization can't grow beyond you. Yeah. So like, do your work. Okay. Do your work. And they're like, they do not like, they do not like, <laughs> I talked to this straight. They do not like, they're not, that's not a They're not accustomed to that. And it's like, it's like, I just try to be their friend. And I think you guys have heard me say this, this quote, an Oscar Wilde quote, true friends stab you in the front. <laughs> okay true friends got you in the front do you get the gift of feedback yeah. do you get the gift of feedback or not because you're not going to get stronger watching me do push-ups yeah. leader okay yeah. you're going to hire a consultant and like i'm doing the push-ups and like you think you're going to get stronger but you're not and so you know this is a little taste at the end here of the, of yeah. the sort of you know spirit of what we're doing down here at the 
Well, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it, Rand. And, um, you know, we're really talking about humans in human organizations and human development. And, you know, maybe we sum it all up. We're all humans now. (laughs) And we really got to put the human element back, back into leadership Mm -hmm. and back into organizations because we've somehow along the way lost that. Thank you so much for being with us today, Rand. Really appreciate the time. And um, we're going to have the fun problem this week of trying to edit this down to an hour. We could go on for another hour and a half. (laughs) But thank you so much for joining us, Rand. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Rand. That was incredible. Uh, Time has flown by. We could spend a lot more time on this, but unfortunately we can't this week. And for you, our listeners, if whatever channel you're listening this on, please feel free to hit that subscribe button and also feel free to share this with uh, with your friends and other acquaintances who you think might benefit from it. And of course, feel free to go to iTunes and leave your comments uh, there for us or go directly to our website, theconsciouscapitalist.com and leave your comments there for Raj and I. And um, if you want to know more about conscious capitalism, Raj, what should they do? You should go to consciouscapitalism.org. That is the nonprofit uh, that uh, all of us have been affiliated with. Uh, and uh, you can find out if there is a local chapter where you live, or you can find out how to join the movement and eventually create a chapter where you are. Well, once again, Rand, it's been wonderful to have you. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you both, and thank you, the listeners, to uh, to your uh, interest in our movement. And hopefully, we can uh, we can engage you in whatever way makes the most sense for you. So, Ron, how can they find out more about what, the work you're doing? Where should they go look for more information? Oh yeah, just our website. It's stagen.com. S-T-A-G-E-N.com. Brilliant. And one last thank you to Carla Viegas, who is our producer, who each week helps us make sure we get this out. Thank you, Carla, and thank you, our listeners. See you next week.